Amen. It's good to hear Linda Lightsey play again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. We continue in our sermon series that we have entitled A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. And as we come to Isaiah 53, we come to an unbelievably powerful passage of Scripture. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we find the last of Isaiah's servant songs. If you've not been with us, we've already done the exegetical work showing that the fulfillment, that the servant of the Lord is the Lord Jesus himself. By way of an update, uh, Jesus himself in Luke 22 and verse 37 said, It is written, and then he quotes Isaiah 53 and verse 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. He quoted that, and then Jesus said, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Jesus said, yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So Jesus himself said that Isaiah 53 and what we read here is about him. He said these words after he had just celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. He's left the upper room. He is headed to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be arrested and betrayed and go to the cross the next day. So Jesus says that Isaiah 53 points to the work that he has done on the cross. And as we come here, it's unbelievable that Isaiah speaks of what happened on the cross with such specificity, even though he wrote 700 years before Christ came. Isaiah even writes at the beginning of Isaiah 53, if you look in verse 1, he says, "...who has believed our message." Isaiah saying, hey, look, this is going to be hard for you to believe. This is going to be a difficult thing for you to grasp. And there are a lot of unbelievable things we're going to look at together. The original audience would struggle because if you read in Isaiah 40, the one that God promised to come and make all things right was a king who was going to make major renovations, not just cosmetic changes, but he was going to change all things. And then Isaiah 42 begins to speak of him as a servant, but he's still going to bring justice to the nations. In Isaiah 49, the servant begins to sound not as much like a king, but like a prophet, because God has set him apart from birth. He's put God's word in his mouth, but he will still be a light to the nations, and they will follow him. But by the time you get to Isaiah 50, the servant is starting to be spit upon and mocked. And as we get to Isaiah 52 and 53... Now the servant of the Lord, who's a king, who's been described as a, as a prophet, now takes the form of a priest. He sprinkles many in 52 and verse 15. He uh, makes sacrifices on behalf of the people, a guilt offering in verse 10. He makes intercession for people in verse 12. So he, now he sounds like a priest, but he's one who will suffer and who will be abused and oppressed and one that will be killed so the original audience has to be scratched. How can this be a king and a prophet and a priest who's going to make all things right and bring justice to the nations and be a light to the nations but be hated by people and suffer and die? How do you reconcile those things? And of course they come to their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. We see how he did all those things and we get a good explanation here as we come to Isaiah 53. There are three other unbelievable things I want you to see as we come to the text today. First, I want us to see the unbelievable simplicity of the power of God. Second, the unbelievable suffering that the servant of the Lord goes through. 
And third, the unbelievable substitution. So let's look at those three things together. First, the unbelievable simplicity. Look in verses 1 and 2. We've already seen that Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? This is, going to be, this is unbelievable, right? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a metaphor for God's power. So he's saying, look, God's going to exert his power in some ways that are going to be hard for you to believe. He's saying, who can see it? To whom has it been revealed? Who's going to be able to see that God works and his power works in this unbelievably simple way? And he describes it in verse 2. Look what he says. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord, instead of bursting on the scene like a mighty oak tree that everybody sees and that it's big and it's overwhelming, that the servant of the Lord is going to come as a tiny sprout, that he's going to be a tender shoot, that he's even in contrast to the mighty oak, that he's going to be like a, a root of the tree that's exposed in dry ground. Now, I know there are people here who know more about trees than I do and know more how to take care of them, but, but if there's dry ground and there's a root exposed, this is a tree that's vulnerable. The root's vulnerable. It can be harmed. It can be damaged, and then it can't do its job of, of bringing in water for the tree. And so this imagery is showing us that this one, this servant of the Lord, is going to be vulnerable, that his survival will be in doubt. And Isaiah goes on to say, this one who's going to make all things right that will, that will bring justice to the nation, to be a light of the world, that there's going to be no beauty to him, that he's not going to have looks, that he's not going to have money, that he's not going to have popularity, that even though he's a king, he'll have no air of majesty about him. It's unbelievable. Everything that the world says is important that you have to have to make a difference, he's saying this guy has none of those things. And of course, these things are all true of Jesus. He came as a baby, helpless, vulnerable, born in a barn, born to impoverished teenagers, probably ostracized in their society because she was pregnant before the child was born. He grew up in Nazareth. If you read in John chapter 1, when Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, Hey, we found the Messiah, the one Moses wrote about. He's from Nazareth. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he's, he wasn't from the right place. He was from some backwater part of Israel. Not the place you would expect a redeemer or a savior to come from. He was a carpenter, a, a simple working man. He had no formal education like a rabbi. He spent three years as an itinerant preacher roaming around. He had these 12 ragtag followers who followed along behind him. He never married. He never had children. He was never elected to public office. He never wrote a book. One of the 12 ragtag followers betrayed him. He's arrested by the Roman authorities. He's tried He's given the death penalty and executed by the Roman Empire. This is the guy who's going to save the world, a light to the nations, to bring justice, to make all things right? And Isaiah is saying, don't be fooled. It's hard to believe that the power of God, 
is at work in this man. Yet we can see today that he literally changed the world. We divide all of world history from before he came and after he came. We say that this year is 2020 because it's been 2020 years roughly since his birth. He only had those 12 ragtag followers, one of which fell away and betrayed him. But he began a movement that is still growing today. He has more than 2 billion people on the planet who follow him, who are his disciples, who look to him as Lord and Savior. So don't be fooled. The power of God often comes in unbelievable simplicity. It's unbelievable to us that the power of God is in the world in Jesus because we expect power to look differently. We expect power to be big and flashy. We expect power to be blustery. We expect power to come in with guns blazing. And Jesus doesn't look that way. It's not the way God's power works. So don't be fooled by what the world tells us power should look like. In fact, let's make a couple of applications throughout our lives. Let's, let's, let's talk about how the power of God works in us and how it works in the world around us. Let's make some application of this unbelievable simplicity. First, how does God's power work in us? We all come to church because we want to change, right? We, th we come here because we think that by coming here, something's going to happen that makes us better in our lives outside of here, right? We're not just wasting our time. We come here because we believe that something can happen in this place that makes us better spouses, that makes us better employers and employees, that makes us better students. We come here because we have an expectation that we're going to change, but how does the power of God lead to change in the life of an individual? We long for sudden, immediate, dramatic change. I just want to take a pill and have it, uh, the whole process done, right? And God can work in that way. He does work in that way sometimes. But don't be fooled. The usual way God works, the ordinary means God uses to change people is slowly over time, day by day, as we're in his word, as we pray with him, as we spend time in worship together singing his praises and the affections of our heart over time, as we sing and as we praise him, the affections of our heart begin to change. As we live life in community with other people, people who make us think about these things, people who make us better as a people, God slowly begins to make changes in the lives of his people. So don't be fooled. Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you? Do you see that his power works in that way? I know we long for that sudden, dramatic, instantaneous change, but know that the power of God often comes in unbelievable simplicity. That's how he works in us. What about the world outside of us? We look at our world today and we long for Jesus just to come back and make everything right. Just like a lightning bolt from heaven, just fire from the sky. We want a big incident. And listen, one day he's going to do that, okay? But until then, the ordinary way that God works to change the world, watch this, this is going to be hard to believe, 
is through his church, through individual people who are being changed by him. And as we gather together and he uses what happens here to change us, as we gather and then as we scatter into the world as salt and light and we go to the places we go in our daily traffic patterns and we live life as followers of Jesus and other people begin to say, hey, can I ask you why you have hope in a world where there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope? Can I ask you why you live the way that you do and you make the decisions that you do? And we say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? And slowly, person by person, life on life, God changes the world. You may look at the church and say, are you kidding me? (laughs) That unorganized, out of touch, uninformed, underfunded, unimpressive ragtag bunch of folks that's our hope for humanity that's what god's working through hey listen i say that sometimes too i'll just be honest it's hard for me to believe as well but yes think about the critique that you might as well be saying wow the church is so vulnerable it has no form or majesty or beauty that would attract us to them the same thing that he says of the servant so don't be fooled That is often how the power of God works, through the ordinary, through the unimpressive. 1 Corinthians 1 says that he loves to use the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. That God loves to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That he loves to use the the least of these. That he loves to use the, the despised. That he loves to use the things that are not to show what really is. So that no one boasts of themselves, but so that he gets all the glory. We often say it here that God loves broken and messed up people. And God uses broken and messed up people. In fact, they're the only kind of people God uses. Because those are the only kinds of people that there are, are broken and messed up people. I love the way Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, we have this treasure, right? The power of God, the glory of God he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. The glory. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're just dirt held together by water, heated up, right? We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So don't be fooled. The power of God often comes in unbelievable simplicity. Secondly, I want us to see, I want us to spend a few minutes looking at the unbelievable suffering that Jesus goes through as this suffering servant. That Jesus, the beloved Son of God, the one God sent to make all things right, his anointed, that he went through unbelievable suffering. You see mental suffering there in verse 3. Look at it with me. He was despised and rejected by men, being hated and rejected. That takes a toll on a person. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Your translation may say familiar with grief, and that's a better translation. He was familiar with grief. He was familiar with sadness. He was familiar with misery. It was not unfamiliar to him. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. To not esteem him means we didn't respect him. We didn't admire him with the admiration that he deserved. Verse 11 refers to the anguish of his soul. He went through mental suffering. 
But of course, there's the, the physical suffering of his death and sacrifice. You see it in verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities or our grief is the better translation. He carried our sorrows. Oh, he was a man of sorrows. It was our sorrows he was carrying. Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. We don't even use these words. We don't really know what they mean, stricken, smitten. We say smitten when somebody likes somebody, they have a crush on them. Stricken is the past participle of strike. It means to hit something. Smitten is the past participle of smite, another word we don't use a whole lot, that also means to hit someone. So he took blows and he was beaten. Look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgression. This word pierced is not just poke. It means to pierce something all the way through. He was pierced through for our transgression. Remember, this is 700 years before the cross. He's saying the servant's going to be pierced through. He says he was pierced, he was crushed for our iniquities. This word crushed, it means to be beaten into pieces, basically to be pulverized. And so the end of verse 5 refers to his wounds. Your translation may say his stripes. In chapter 52 and verse 14, it says that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. That's how bad the physical suffering was. Experts in the Hebrew language say that these words, in the Hebrew language, these are the words for the most violent and excruciating death someone could suffer. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. We use that word oppressed a lot. Look what the Bible refers to as oppression. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression, there it is again. The word there in verse 8 can mean arrest. By oppression or arrest and judgment, he was taken away. These are legal words. He's arrested. And by judgment, there's a judgment made against him, right? He's tried in a court of law and found guilty. But he wasn't guilty. We'll see that in a moment. Verse 8, he's cut off from the land of the living. That means he died alone in isolation, away from everybody else. And you can tell it means died because verse 9 says he was assigned to a grave because he's dead and he's killed, Right? In, in verse 9, if you read on, it says he was treated as the worst of criminals, right? Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It's an unjust execution. This oppression, he, he's the victim of injustice. That's why Jesus, down in verse 12, says that it applied to him that he was numbered with the transgressors. Not that he transgressed any law of God or man. But he was numbered with the transgressors. And look what it says right there at the end of verse 12. For he bore the sin of many. That might have been the worst suffering at all. Think about it. If ever there was an entity in the history of the world that was unprepared for bearing sin, it was Jesus the eternal Son of God who had never sinned, the Lamb, without stain, without blemish. We get used to sin. It doesn't even bother us that much. But to be a sinless being from all eternity and then to have the sin of many placed on you, the burden of that. And then to be stricken by God, 
to be rejected by the Father, to have his Father turn his face away. The Son, who had always lived in perfect relationship with the Father, always having love and affection and joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit right there amongst the Trinity, and to have those things ripped from him, and to feel the wrath and the punishment of Almighty God, the spiritual suffering had to be the worst. Now, we'll talk in just a moment about why he suffered. But right now, just make note of the unbelievable suffering that Jesus went through. And you may say, why are you spending so much time on this? You're kind of bringing me down, man. I don't like to talk about ugly things like this. We see enough of it in the news. We see enough of it. Why would we talk about it here? Here's the reason why. Listen, this is why it makes a difference in your life today and tomorrow. For this reason. Because when things don't go my way... (laughs) When I experience hardship much less than this, I am very quick to say, wow, God does not love me. He's not for me. God doesn't care about me. But when those lies begin to enter our mind, Isaiah 53 gives us the answer, and that answer is, what about Jesus? If Jesus is the eternal Son of God, his beloved Son, and Jesus went through this unbelievable suffering, then Jesus proves our suffering does not mean that God does not love us. Jesus shows us that God's love for us is not inconsistent with our suffering. Even when we can't see why God is allowing us to go through what we go through, we can see Jesus And know that just because we suffer, it does not mean that God does not love us, or that he's not with us, or that he's not for us, or that he doesn't care. You see, the suffering and death of Jesus looked like the ultimate defeat, but God used it for the ultimate good. So when we suffer what feels like to us to be ultimate defeat, we can have faith that God can ultimately use it for our good and for the good of others. So when we cannot even see God's purposes in what we go through, we can see Jesus and know that God uses unbelievable suffering to accomplish unbelievable good, and we're able to persevere in the face of very hard things. That's why seeing the suffering of Jesus makes a difference in our lives every day. But I want you to see this third thing the unbelievable substitution. I told you I would come back to that question, why did he have to suffer? Why did he go through these things? Well, it's because of the unbelievable substitution. Look, the text says, look at verse 4. He took up our infirmities or grief. He carried our sorrows. He was a man of sorrows because he carried ours. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, he was pulverized for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. We are all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him our iniquity, the iniquity of us all. Oh my, do you see the unbelievable substitution His unbelievable suffering was because of his unbelievable substitution, taking the punishment for our sin and infirmity and transgression and iniquity and guilt. 
There is a virtual thesaurus here of references to sin. Most of them are church words, right? Iniquity, we don't really use outside the church. Transgression, sin. But the explanation Isaiah gives here in verse 6 is, is a simple, so simple a child could understand what sin is. What does he say in verse 6? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's what sin is. It's me turning to my own way instead of following God's way. We said in the call to worship in Psalm 100 and verse 2, we said, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his people. Oh my, because I sometimes think that, that I belong to me and that I can do whatever I want to with my body or my time or my resources. And Psalm 100 reminds us, no, we are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. So when we decide to go our own way instead of God's way, we're saying, I want to be my own shepherd. I want to be my own God. I want to be on the throne of my life. I know better than he knows what is best for my family. I know what is better for relationships. I know what is better for marriage, even though he invented it. I know better about parenting. I know better about sex and sexuality. That's what we say when we go our own way and we put ourselves in the place of God. It's what happened in Genesis 3, right? The temptation was they would be like God. And they go their own way, not the way God had prescribed. And as a result, shame and fear and blame and hatred and decay and death come into the world when we decide to go our own way. Listen to me. Sin is going our own way. It is putting ourselves in the place of God. And sin enters the world when we put ourselves in God's rightful place. But salvation enters the world when God puts himself in our place. Our salvation is because of this unbelievable substitution. That Jesus underwent this unbelievably, unbelievable suffering that he did not deserve. Because it's the punishment that our sin deserves. He did that for us in our place as our substitute, unbelievable substitute. Who would come up with that idea? I know God. Why don't you take on flesh and come and take the punishment? for? We wouldn't even dare to suggest such a thing. Yet Jesus volunteers to do it. I want you to see a couple of things. First, I want you to see that it's voluntary. We often say that God placed sin on him, and he certainly did. But look what verse 4 says. It says, surely he took up our grief and infirmities, right? He took up our sorrows. Not they were placed on him, but he voluntarily took it on. Jesus in John chapter 10 and verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Then in verse 18 there in John chapter 10, he says, no one takes it, my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. Jesus did all this voluntarily. Now I know others have died in the place of someone else, and I think that's a noble and a beautiful thing to do. It's a picture of the gospel. And I thought about putting a story here to illustrate this, to inspire us, to, to make it more personal, to make it look like, but you know, no story exactly fits. And here's the reason why. 
Because we may volunteer to die now instead of later. I can choose the time or the manner of my death. If I jump off a building, I'm saying I'm going to die now, and it's when I hit the sidewalk. I can choose the time and the manner of my death. But if the Lord tarries, I can't decide whether I'm going to die or not. We're all going to die. This was voluntary because Jesus didn't. He thought it was worth it. Where do you see that in the text? Look at verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, so we know that he's dead. Um, he didn't deserve to be, right? Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, that is a sacrifice for sin. It's a, it's a, it's a specific term. You can read about it in Leviticus, specifically chapter 4, down around verse 15. So he's dead because the guilt offering is sacrifice. It's killed for sin. But then it says he will see his offspring. Well, how's he going to do that if he's dead? And prolong his days. Well, how does he prolong his days if he's dead? And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Well, how does that happen if he's dead? Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Oh, my. Verse 11, a prediction of the resurrection 700 years before it happens. But, but that's not even what my point is here. It's amazing. You should see it. It's unbelievable, right? But look what it says. It says, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. What's he satisfied with? Keep going. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. That he's satisfied that he justifies people by giving them his righteousness and taking the punishment for their sin. Now, don't let this word satisfied fool you. I don't like that translation because satisfied to me just means, well, you didn't blow me away and you didn't just, you know, bomb. I was satisfied with what you did, right? That's kind of what I mean by satisfied. The word here is actually sated. But nobody knows what that means, so of course the translators made it satisfied. Sated means to be fully satisfied. If you are hungry and you eat a meal and your hunger is sated, it is fully satisfied. You are filled up. This says that he was sated. He was fully satisfied in what he accomplished by giving you his righteousness and taking the punishment for your death. It is un. Believable. I never understood Hebrews 12 and verse 2 where it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I always thought the joy set before him was after he goes through all this difficult stuff, he'll ascend into heaven and everybody will be like giving him high fives and like cheering for him and stuff. Way to go, Jesus. That's awesome what you did and what you accomplished, man. That was incredible. Now God can do all this work. You know, it was not the praise of men or of heavenly beings that he accomplished on the cross. That wasn't the joy set before him. He had that if he never left heaven. He was the eternal son of God who was entitled to eternal praise and worship. It says that the people around the throne, that whatever entities around, they can't help but saying day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He had eternal praise whether he put on flesh and suffered and died or not. What did he gain by coming here and going through the suffering? He gained you. And he gained me. 
You are his joy. Seeing you grow in his righteousness is his joy. Taking the punishment and the condemnation for your sin, that's what filled him up and satisfied him fully. It's too much for me. I don't even understand it, really. It makes it hard to preach, but I'm just thinking, I'm not satisfied with me. How can he be satisfied with me? I don't bring me joy. How do I bring him joy? I think it's because of Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I think it's that when God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of his Son. He sees the righteousness imputed to us by Christ in this unbelievable substitution, and it brings him great joy, and he's fully satisfied. It's too much for me. Let me just make a few applications. I know I've been preaching for a while, but man, if you get a hold of this, or if this gets a hold of you, it'll change your life. Let me just make three applications quickly. Just head, heart, hands kind of stuff, okay? This changes the way we think with our head. We talk about Christ-centered preaching and Christ-centered worship and Christ-centered this and Christ-centered that. The reason why Jesus is, is, is central for us is because he's everything to us. He is our righteousness. I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from observing the law. It's from him. Christ is for us wisdom from God. It is in him that all things hold together. He is my only hope. The New Testament apostles preach, like in, in Acts 4.12, that salvation is found in no other name because there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. And I understand why now. Because either I pay the penalty for my sin or Jesus has paid for it. There's not another choice. There is no other fountain of life. So let me ask you, is Jesus central in your thinking? Is Jesus central to your life and what you do? Listen, I know that freedom feels like going your own way. It feels like running in your own direction and not being bound by what God says in his word. But listen to me, beloved. That is the way that leads to death. And decay, don't be fooled. Make Christ central in your thinking. It is the way to life. Second, what about my heart? This gives me an assurance in my heart. You know, I used to be afraid that my sin could make me lose my standing with God. And let me be clear. Your sin grieves God. You can quench the Spirit it can hurt your relationship with God, but your sin does not affect your standing with God. It does not affect your place in his family. And that's because Jesus secured it, not me. It wasn't my actions that make God's favor rest on me. It's Jesus' actions that make God's favor rest on me. And what that means is that I can't do anything to make God love me any more than he already loves me right now because he loves me based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. And the part that is hard for us to believe is that also means that I cannot do anything to make God love me any less because his love for me is not based on what I do. It is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Just think about it with me for a second. 
do you really think you could do something to make Jesus give up on you? When he has endured the wrath of God for you, he endured all the pain of hell itself, and he did not turn away, but he endured it in your place for you, and now you think this thing that you did is going to make him turn from you now? It's absurd. It's nonsense. Let that assurance be in your heart. Allow seeing this, allow it to have assurance that you're place with God is sure, and yes, I want to walk more closely with him. I don't want to do anything to grieve him. I don't want to do anything to quench the spirit, but my place in God's family is secure because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Last thing. This will change your life. It'll change the way you live. Let me be clear. I still want to go my own way. I still struggle with that to this day. But when I see what Jesus was willing to do for me and the unbelievable suffering that he endured, all of a sudden, I don't want to go my own way so much anymore. Those desires don't have the hold over me that they used to. Because if Jesus loves me that much, then I want to walk in his ways. And when I don't walk in his ways... It makes me hate my sin to see that my going my own way did this to my Savior. It'll change the way that you think. It'll change the assurance in your heart. It'll change the way that you live. Oh, do you see the unbelievable simplicity, the unbelievable suffering, the unbelievable substitution? Look to these things. Meditate on these things. Don't stop looking at these things. Trust in these things. Hold on to these things. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. Walk with him. Let me pray and ask him to help us to do that. Heavenly Father, we read beautiful things in your word. We are stirred in our hearts, and yet we still want to go our own way. We will leave here and desire to go our own way. Oh, God, break our hearts. Help us to see your unbelievable suffering for us. Help us to see your plan, your path for us as the safe path. Help us to see the unbelievable simplicity as you use day by day the word and prayer and worship and community in order to make us more and more into the people that you would have us to be. Help us to see the unbelievable substitution on our behalf. Father, I pray that we would never be able to unsee it. That you would make it clear that you would sear it into our hearts. That we would never forget what you have done for us. And as we see it, that it would change us. Please come and do that for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.